Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. We're starting a new teaching series today, uh, if you haven't heard, and it's called Skeptics Welcome. And in the next seven weeks, we are going to be looking at uh, some of the more challenging questions that people have about the Christian faith. Now, uh, if you are a thinking person, you have likely encountered these questions before in the past. And I realize in a group of this size, we're all coming at these questions from different angles, from different perspectives and, and different life experiences. So uh, maybe today you are here and and you consider yourself a Christian, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but you're looking for answers because you have really been wrestling with uh, doubts uh, because of some of these questions. Uh, or maybe you're here today, uh, maybe you came with a friend, or maybe you're just checking us out uh, because you heard about this series, and uh, you're just starting to investigate faith. You're, you're working through maybe some of the roadblocks that you have experienced uh, to faith in your own life. Uh, but perhaps maybe you are here today and you're just, hey, I just need some good answers to these questions because these questions come up time and time again. And I really want to have an intelligence response to some of these questions that we face. Wherever you're coming from, whatever your background, whatever your experience this morning, our hope and our prayer for this series is that it will be helpful to you. That's our goal. Um, let me just say a few words about our posture in this series before we dive into it, because I think that's really, really important. Uh, first of all, we want to give everybody room to wrestle with these questions. So as a faith community at Crosspoint, we, really, we think that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to process your doubts, and it's okay to do all of that and yet still be part of our community. We are a community where it's okay to not be okay. We are a community where you can be on a journey of questioning and figuring stuff out. You see, if we're really honest with ourselves, I think every one of us faces doubts time and again. As a matter of fact, being human, uh, doubting is very much part of the human process, the human reality. Uh, I like what the famous Christian apologist Dr. William Lane Craig says about doubt. Here's what he says. He says, any Christian who is intellectually engaged and reflecting about his faith, will inevitably face the problem of doubt. Doubt is just a human reality. And as a matter of fact, doubt is one of the things that actually reinforces our faith. Uh, it has this strengthening power in our lives. Now, the second thing I want to say about our posture is that this is a thinking series. In this series, we are going to engage the mind. We're going to ask you to consider, to, to think. Um, we believe that Christians should not check their brains at the door. We believe that God has given us a mind, a beautiful mind, and, and part of the discipleship, discipleship experience is that God actually wants to reform the mind. He wants to change the mind. Uh, I, I want to read a scripture to you uh, for believers in Christ who are here today from 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Here's what the, uh, the apostle Peter is saying to the church. He writes and he says this, In your hearts revere Christ as Lord, but always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Peter says, 
that we need to be prepared to have an answer. That word uh, answer in, in, the, in the original Greek, the language in which the Bible was really originally written, the Greek word for the answer is apologia. It's actually the word where we get the word apologetics comes from. The word apologia means a defense. It means a case. It means to have an argument, a good rationale, a solid basis for what you believe. In this series, that's what we're going to hope to provide, a good rationale, a good basis. But you'll notice that it, says that, that it says that it's not just what your answer is that matters, it's how you give your answer that matters. It says in the text, when you provide an answer, how should we do it? It says to do it with gentleness and respect. If you spend any time on social media lately, you may have observed that these two commodities are in short supply. And my hope is that for us as cross-pointers, for our community, is that when, when people read what we post or when people hear what we say, what comes out of us ultimately are gentleness and respect. The Bible encourages us toward reasoned and respectful dialogue. So this is also the posture that I'm hoping to have during this series, and, and I hope you will as well as you dialogue about these matters, as you talk about it around the water cooler or around the... Starbucks table or wherever you're having these types of a conversation. Okay, well, that being said, let's dive right into today's topic. Uh, the question that we're starting with today is simply this. Is belief in God reasonable? Is belief in God reasonable? Now, sadly, in our culture, uh, belief in God is sometimes seen as unreasonable. Uh, in the media, those who believe in God, uh, most often Christians, uh, are sometimes portrayed as bigoted, irrational, misogynistic, uneducated barbarians who have bomb shelters in their backyards and who believe that Oprah Winfrey is the Antichrist. Um, if that's you today, bless you. Okay. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, those, those who don't believe in God are often portrayed as progressive, sophisticated, educated, fashionable, inclusive, and have their fingers on the zeitgeist, zeitgeist pulse of society and culture. Now, these are caricatures and the, the challenges... Uh, with caricatures is oftentimes they're not really true. They're, they're usually the far extremes of, of either position. Um, but the reality is, is that sometimes believers in Christ are portrayed as unreasonable, out of touch with reality, um, people who have, in fact, checked their brains at the door. And this has actually been reinforced in our culture in the last while uh, by what has been known as militant atheism or fundamentalist atheism uh, in this past decade. So this is a movement that uh, if many of you have been paying attention to. It's been spearheaded by, by these uh, significant atheist uh, writers and authors, uh, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, so let me just give you an example of, of what they're saying uh, about believers in Christ. Uh, here's what they say. Uh, this is Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion. Uh, here's what he said once at a lecture in Edinburgh. Uh, he says, faith is the great cop-out. It's the great excuse to evade the need to, to what? To think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, or perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Um, and one of his uh, uh, colleagues, uh, Sam Harris, he wrote something similarly in a book called The End of Faith. Here's what he says. He says, we have names for people who have many beliefs for which there is no rational justification. When their beliefs are extremely common, we call them religious. Otherwise, they are likely to be called mad, delusional, or psychotic. Those are strong words. Um, so essentially what, what we're saying is, is that the popular assumption is that Christian belief is non-rational. It's non-evidence-based. And yet, 
What's interesting is, as it turns out, in the academic world, we're not talking about the popular media world, but in the academic world, there has been a resurgence toward theism. Uh, this is especially true in disciplines like science and philosophy. So because of brilliant philosophers such as Alvin Plantinga, if you haven't heard of him, he's brilliant, uh, it is academically, uh, academically respectable to argue for theism. Now, Alvin Plantinga is considered by many to be one of the greatest living philosophers today on the planet. Now, this doesn't prove anything about the existence of God. Uh, the majority can be wrong, okay? So it's not about what the majority thinks at the end of the day. But what it does do is it helps dispel the myth that belief in God is only for unreasonable people. And what I hope to demonstrate today is that belief in God actually has intellectual credibility. That belief in God can, in fact, be seen as reasonable. Now, let me just say this at the top. What I'm not going to do today is try and prove that God exists. As a matter of fact, I do not think you can absolutely prove God's existence by reason. And the majority of theistic philosophers and apologists would agree with this. The thing is, you can always find room for doubt and skepticism in any truth statement. Okay, so let me give you an example of a truth statement right now. Right now, you are sitting in a chair. How many would agree with that statement? Are you sitting in a chair? Except for those of you who are standing. Uh, yes, okay, you're sitting in a chair, right? But is that necessarily true? Can you say that you are sitting in the chair you're in beyond a shadow of a doubt? And you might say, Rob, that's irrational. It's un okay, okay, okay. But maybe, maybe you are just imagining right now that you're sitting in a chair. Could it be? that you are a brain in a jar, floating in outer space, and that the real you, okay, the real, the ontological you is floating somewhere out there in space, and right now you're just simply imagining that you're here. Okay, so Neo, Matrix, okay, uh, you're just this body there, and this is the real you. So all that is just to simply illustrate, there is room for skepticism, there is room for doubt in the vast majority of true statements that we actually have. Now, Thinking this way and living this way is not actually helpful, okay? But at the end of the day, there is room for skepticism. And the arguments that are presented for the existence of God, of course there's room for skepticism. There is no silver bullet. There is no watertight argument that's complete. If we found it, everyone would have believed it by now. So, what I want us to examine today are simply some key evidences for the existence of God. And at the very least, these evidences will demonstrate that belief in God is reasonable. But I hope, I hope, I hope today that you will follow the evidence where it leads and that these evidence will serve as a pointer to the evidence for an intelligent designer or creator. You know, the, the philosopher Alvin Plantinga, he says that you could probably come up with, there are, uh, he records almost two dozen philosophical arguments for God's existence. Well, we don't have time for two dozen arguments. The, today, we're only going to look at three, okay? We're going to dive into three. And I will say, because of time constraints, we're gonna be only going to be skimming the surface of the arguments, okay? Uh, because the arguments themselves, they are much more nuanced. Um, uh, and, and so all I can do today is really outline the basics of each of them. But I have included in your notes... If you have a bulletin today, you pull up the notes, okay? I have included opportunities for you to take a deeper dive into what I'm just going to give 
today as maybe as a cursory glance at each of these three arguments. So I hope that you will, today will spark something. And if you do have questions and you want to go deeper, I've given you an opportunity to, to do so today, uh, to think about these matters. So let's just dive in. And let me look at the three evidences or the three arguments that uh, are probably the more common ones that are presented as evidences for God. So here's the first one. It's known as the evidence from morality or what's called the moral argument. The moral argument basically just asks this question. Can you have objective moral values without God? Can you have objective moral values without God? See, most people, most of us here, we live and respond to our world as though there are universal moral absolutes. In other words, we believe that there are actions, there are things in this world that people do that are just wrong. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done. These things are just, just wrong. And oftentimes in our own day-to-day experience, we'll say things like, that's wrong, or that's not fair, right? What we're doing when we're saying those things is we're making declarations of universal truth, declarations of objective moral reality, okay? Most of us, I think, would agree that there's something inherently wrong with things like genocide or child abuse or terrorism. Listen, the reason why the Me Too movement has gained so much traction is because most people agree that human rights for women matter. I think we did a poll today in the room here. Everyone said, yeah, human rights for women matter. So this sense of right and wrong that we have, each and every one of us has, seems to be woven right into us. It's woven into the very fabric of who we are. Uh, So, for example, when you go into Tim Hortons and somebody completely ignores the line and cuts to the front, something inside of you goes, "Ah," right? Even if you're not standing in line, you see it happen, you go, "Ah," right? Because you know how Tim Hortons works, right? They fixed it. They didn't used to have this. But they got that that little thing, right, that they stretch out, right? And it's very clear because it has a sign that says at the end of it, it says, line starts here. And the the line starts here. You go down the thing, right? You get to the end. And then somebody at the till clearly says, can I help you? You step up to the till and you get your double-double, right? That's how it works. But when somebody sees a line of people, 10 people long, completely bypasses the system and walks to the front of the line, something inside of you goes, huh? That's wrong. What is it inside of us that says that's wrong? Now, of course, in other cultures and other parts of the world, that's completely normal, okay? Maybe that's just a a Canadian value. I don't know. But when we see pictures on TV of genocide, and when we see pictures on TV of child abuse, something inside of us says, that's not right. And the moral argument asks the question, where does that sense of right and wrong ultimately come from? Now, The moral argument says that it's impossible to sustain a belief in absolute objective morality apart from a belief in God. What it says is that objective morality ultimately requires an objective reference point beyond people. Okay, so it can't come from a subjective point of view. Objective morality can't come from people's opinions. It can't come from cultural notions, okay, because all of those are just subjective points of view, and if it comes from a subjective point of view, then it's not objective morality, it is subjective morality. So if you say something is wrong, and you don't have this objective reference point, you are simply making a subjective value statement. It doesn't matter whether you're saying that personally, it doesn't matter whether you're saying that culturally, at the end of the day, it's still a subjective point of view. 
So if you say that child abuse is universally wrong, then you have to have an objective reference point to back that up, okay? So objective morality requires this objective reference point that transcends or goes beyond subjectivity. It has to be something that's outside of people, outside of the world of people. Now, for theists or for Christians, we understand that that God is this objective reference point. God is good, he's loving, he's holy, he's just. And so that what is right and wrong ultimately flows from the nature of God. It flows from the character of God. And his nature is the standard, the compass against which all other values are measured. And God has revealed his nature to us. He's provided commands for us, these universal laws uh, that, are, that are present in the universe in which we live. And as a matter of fact, the Bible actually says in Romans chapter uh, 2, verses 14 to 15, that God has taken those laws, those commands, and he's implanted them on human hearts. He's put them right inside of us. So that we have this intuitive sense, this, this inner radar, this inner GPS that points us to the good and to the bad. And so there is, there is, a, there is a theistic Christian explanation of where this inner sense of right and wrong comes from. But here's the thing, is, is, is if atheism is true, then there is no ultimate standard for good and evil. Because in that worldview, there is no objective force or person that's requiring us to be good. Humans, human beings, you and I, are simply accidents of nature. We are simply highly evolved animals that are the end result of a, of a very long process of known as evolution. So let me give you an example, okay, from the atheist world, the atheist camp, uh, the, the devout and popular atheist Richard Dawkins would agree with this, and here's what he wrote. Here's what Richard Dawkins says. He says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observed has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. See, if you, it, when, you, when you take God out of the picture, if you don't believe in God, then it is, it is, is virtually impossible to say that there are objective moral values. And, and so uh, a, a world without God in the picture pr cannot provide the foundation for the moral reality that each of us experiences every day. And yet then it begs the question, well, what do we do with these inner urges that we have towards the good? Like, wh wh how do we make sense of those? And, and, and there are some who are skeptical of this moralist argument who have attempted to come up with these alternative ways of explaining where moral values ultimately come from. I can't get into all of them today, but let me give you one of them. One alternative is to say that the values that we have in culture today were culturally formed. So this is what's called a more pragmatic or practical approach to morality. In other words, as human beings evolved, you know, we came up from the monkeys and we grew and we began to form relationships, we began to form communities and ultimately began to form societies, okay? The result of this was the formation of our ethics, our beliefs about what is right and what is wrong, okay? And that provides a possible explanation of where they come from, but it still doesn't answer the problem. And the problem is universal moral values. At best, from this way of understanding where ethics come from, at best, uh, you can say that our values are culturally relative. So the problem is, is that child abuse in this culture might be wrong, but in another culture, it might be right. And this culture has no way of saying to that other culture that their position is wrong, because there is no objective moral value that goes beyond all of that. 
And you might say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't happen, does it? Listen, I just spent time in Phuket, Thailand two weeks ago. And kids are being sold into prostitution all the time. And it's completely okay. You go to Cambodia, it's completely okay, culturally okay. Because it honors the family. But in our world, in our culture, we would say, that there, ooh, there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. Well, do we just accept that all values are just culturally based? Okay, they're subjective to cultures. Or would we agree that there is something going beyond culture, transcending culture that is right and that is wrong? So another real-world example is in 1933, the Nazis seized power in Germany and used the law to impose totalitarian rule over their country. Then new laws were brought in that just kind of enforced the Nazi ideology, right? And what they did was completely legal. It was completely moral according to their own culture. The only way that we could ever challenge the Nazis would be to complain that there is a higher moral authority that transcends their culture and convention. So, just to sum up this argument, most of us, most of us would intuit inside of us that there are these objective moral standards. The question is, ultimately, where do these objective moral standards come from? And the theist position just provides a reasonable explanation of their origins. So that's the first argument. Here's the here's second uh, explanation, is the evidence from cosmology. Uh, the co it's called the cosmological argument, um, or argument from beginnings. And uh, there are a few different versions of this argument, but for the sake of time, we're going to look at the most basic version of the argument. Here's how the argument goes. Number one, everything which begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. The question is, what causes the universe? So let me break down this argument for you. First of all, everything which begins to exist, everything which begins to exist has a cause or was caused by something else. So for example, you are here today and you are, were caused by a biological procreation between two homo sapiens. In other words, your parents got busy and you came into the world, okay? You were caused by something. Something caused that to happen. Probably classic 80s love songs, dim lighting, and a bottle of wine. Um, but you exist because you were caused by something. Your parents before you exist because they were caused by something. And their parents before that exist because they were caused by something. And you can follow this whole stream of causes all the way back to the beginning of humanity. The creation of human beings, homo sapiens, okay? And this is true not only of human beings, but this is true of all things. All things, both living and non-living. Everything that exists, ultimately, was caused by something. Logically, things don't come from nothing. Okay? Things come from something. You cannot say that a thing came from nothing. It is a contradiction in terms. Things have to come from something. And, of course, this is indisputable in the realm of science. I mean, we, we've heard of the principle of cause and effect, action and reaction. Science has never, ever documented anything that has come into being out of nothing. Something has to come out of something. There has to be a cause. So when we look at the universe, it can be understood, basically, if you look at the universe, as this linear regression of cause and effect relationships going all the way back. Cause, 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 going all the way back to a beginning. And it's what philosophers call the first cause or to a singularity. Somehow, at some point, the universe began to exist. The question is, if it began to exist, where did it come from? 
What was the first cause? What was the uncaused cause? Now, there are some people who would argue against this, and people have argued that the universe doesn't actually need to have a beginning. Why does it have to have a beginning? Couldn't the, couldn't the universe just have always been? Like, couldn't the universe just be like infinite, going all the way back, and ad infinitum, just go all the way back, cause, 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 and, and just, just keep going? Why does it have to have a beginning? And, and for most of history, it was actually very difficult to dispute this line of thinking. It was like, oh, okay, I guess, yeah, either option is equally plausible. But in 1929, everything changed. Because in 1929, Edwin Hubble made what has been one of the greatest scientific discoveries in the 20th century. He discovered that the universe actually began to exist. And that the universe is, is in fact rapidly expanding. That all the galaxies, stars, planets, energy had a beginning. They had this common point of origin. This is what is known as the Big Bang Theory or the Big Bang Model. You know, even brilliant minds like Stephen Hawking, who most of us know, he said this. He said, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Now, what's most interesting about the Big Bang Theory is it was originally rejected by the scientific community. Um, and it wasn't rejected because, you know, they looked at uh, Hubble's data or his calculations. Originally, the reason why the scientific community rejected the Big Bang Theory is because it seemed to support the Judeo-Christian idea of the beginning of the world. That's why they rejected it at first. But eventually, over time, as they looked at the calculations, as they looked at the, observa the observable data of Hubble's findings, they had to overcome the prejudices and say, okay, yeah. So that today, most of the physics scientific community would say, yes, there was a singularity, there was a beginning, there was this Big Bang that existed. So what that means then is that if the universe has a beginning, it begs the question, what began the universe? What caused it? And logicians argue that whatever caused it would have to be this uncaused cause. Something, though, that, that isn't part of the universe, something that actually transcends time, something that goes beyond space, something timeless, beginningless, spaceless, and immaterial. That's how they would describe it. Those are the criteria for this thing that causes the first cause. And there are two things we know in our world today that meet these criteria. The first thing we know that meets this criteria are abstract objects. So theories, formulas, that kind of meets that criteria. The second thing that meets that criteria is a mind or intelligence. And so it is plausible, and I guess I would ask the question for us today, is it plausible that a mind is behind the origin of the universe? That a mind, an intelligence, is in fact the first cause that caused all other things to come into being, this uncaused cause. So that's the evidence from cosmology. Here's the final evidence. It's called the evidence from teleology. Um, the teleological argument, or simply put, the argument from design. Now, the teleological argument essentially looks at the universe, looks at the universe in all its beauty, uh, looks at the universe in all its complexities, and it asks this question, this, this brilliant universe that is before us, um, does this not point towards an intelligent designer? 
As a matter of fact, the Bible makes this claim itself. You read in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul talks about uh, how the creation, when we look at it, it, it speaks to us of God and his existence. Uh, you read Psalm 19, and it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament displays his handiwork. Night after night, they display speech. Day after day, they pour forth knowledge. Okay, so you can look up at the sky, and you can, you can see the existence of, a, of an intelligent designer of God. Um, so, so the argument uh, of uh, teleology was, was first popularized by a man named William Cayley in 1802. And it was known as the analogy of the watchmaker. And it goes something like this. So, so suppose you're lost in the wilderness. You've been lost for days. Maybe your plane crashed and you're in northern Canada somewhere. And it's summer, so you're not freezing to death quite yet. And uh, you're wandering around in the woods. And as you're wandering around in the woods, you look down and you happen upon a watch. It's not a stick. It's not a piece of wood, it's a watch. You pick it up and you look at it, and it's ticking. And, and, and it's one of those ones where you can kind of see through it, and you can look inside, and you can see, like, the intricacies of the gears, and it's, and it's going around, and, and it's keeping track of time. And he said, would you assume to yourself that that watch sitting there in the middle of the universe just came about as a process of just kind of random events over a period of time, that somehow this, this watch just kind of appeared? And, and that the universe itself had created the watch? Or would it be more reasonable to assume that somebody had designed it? Now, he would say intuition and reason would tell you that it was designed by someone. And Paley argues that in the same way, when we examine the universe, does it not point towards an intelligent designer? Now, the watchmaker analogy has been much disputed, and I, I think it's been well disputed in, on a number of fronts. Uh, because not many years later, Darwin came out, of course, with his alternate theory of how things began, namely the process of evolution. Uh, he argued, you know, that sophisticated organisms we see today were the process of natural selection as opposed to divine design, right? And it was just through this countless uh, generations of mutation and random events and survival of the fittest that uh, eventually species, known as human beings, kind of came to be. And if you grew up in schools here in Alberta, I'm sure that you've heard this as we've taken it in his mother's milk as, as the way that things happened and how it, you know, ultimately we came to today. Now, most advocates of the teleological argument say that we need to take a step back from biology and we need to actually look at a bigger picture. We need to look at the bigger picture of the universe. And they say that when you look at the big picture, you will be stunned, absolutely stunned by the delicate balance of physical constants that are required to produce life. And if these physical constants were actually ultimately not in place, human life would not have been possible. It's what no, is known as the anthropic principle. So what they say is, listen, the odds, if you want to weigh the odds, the odds of the universe actually being able to create life are so infinitely small, it is really hard to maintain that we came about by chance. Francis Collins, uh, he was the, the award-winning uh, scientist who mapped the human genome. Uh, for most of Francis Collins' life, he was an atheist. When he got into graduate school, he had an encounter with God, and, and, and he converted to Christianity. Um, but after mapping the genome, he's, he wrote a book, and it's called The Language of God. And here's what he writes in the book, The Language of God. He says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constants, various constants, both strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. 
If any one of these constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. Now, many scientists, like Collins, have difficulty dismissing this delicate balance as mere coincidence. Instead, they've seen that it, it's likely that there has been some cosmic intelligent fine-tuning taking place in order for human life to exist. Now, this, is, this has been a, power, uh, a, a really good argument. Uh, in fact, it was such an effective argument that it actually changed the beliefs of the not notorious atheist who is known as Anthony Flew. Uh, Flew, in the past century, was one of the strongest proponents for atheism. As a matter of fact, uh, he wrote groundbreaking papers that have been widely reprinted among the atheist community. He built his career debunking the existence of God. He debated publicly with some of the greatest Christian philosophers. Uh, Flew was, was the man as far as atheism goes. But at the last of his public debates in May 2004, he announced that he accepted the existence of a God. And before passing away in 2010, he published his final book that is called There is a God. And I have it on my shelf. I've enjoyed reading it. Um, I just want to bring out what he said at that 2004 symposium. Okay, these are among his final public words that he said. And he was asked this question. He, said, he was asked if uh, recent work on the origin of life pointed to creative intelligence. And here's what he said. He said, yes, I now think it does. Almost entirely because of the DNA investigations. What I think the DNA material has done is that it has shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life, that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. The meeting of these two parts at the right time, by chance, is simply minute. And before his death in 2010, Flew said he was still following the evidence where it leads. I like that. Now, one of the rebuttals of the intelligent design argument is that time changes everything. If you are given an infinite amount of time and an infinite number of random occurrences, absolutely anything can happen. Uh, the, the analogy is sometimes known as the infinite monkey theorem. Okay, so it goes like this. If you give a monkey a keyboard and you let that monkey pound on that keyboard for an infinite amount of time, he will eventually be able to produce the complete works of William Shakespeare, without a doubt. Given enough time, you just let him go, okay? Eventually, Shakespeare. Uh, it, it's interestingly enough, an experiment was conducted by the British National Council of Arts where a computer was placed in a cage with six monkeys, um, and s after six months of hammering away at the keyboard and using it as a latrine, uh, they, found, they found 50 pages of data, and they did not find a single word among that whole pile of data and pile of something else, okay? Uh, they, they found, they, I mean, not even the letter A space or letter I space. They found absolutely nothing. That doesn't prove anything. But, of course, the argument is if they had more time, just give the monkeys time, eventually they could pull it off. But as we've already pointed out today, the difficulty with the infinite monkey theorem is that the universe, so we have discovered, now had a beginning. That there hasn't an infinite amount of time. There is a finite amount of time. Limited amount of time. So there was a, a scientist, Jerry Schroeder. He took these findings and he, he tried to figure out the probability of the universe creating just a 14-line Shakespearean sonnet. 
could the universe create just a 14-line Shakespearean sonnet? And I'm going to read what he says here and, and, you know, put on your brains for a second here again. Okay, so he says, if you took the entire universe and converted it to computer chips, okay, forget the monkeys. And each one weighing a millionth of a gram and, and had each computer chip able to spin out 488 trials at, say, a million times a second. Hey, that's, 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 anyone want that computer? I want that on my phone. Okay, um, a million times a second. If you turn the entire universe into these microcomputer chips, and these chips were spinning a million times a second, producing random letters, the number of trials you would get since the beginning of time would be 10 to the 90th trials. That's a lot of numbers. It would be off again by a factor of 10 to the 600th. You will never get a sonnet by chance. The universe would have to be 10 to the 600th times larger, yet the world just seems to think that the monkeys can do it every single time. The bottom line is that believing we are here by chance, okay, just by sheer chance, takes a significant amount of faith. And we often talk about this conversation, well, those in the religious world are the ones who require faith to believe. Listen, you also require faith to believe if you're in the non-religious world, in the atheistic world. It takes a significant amount of faith to uphold some of these positions. It, it, it really does. So here's the question. Did life occur as a result of chance, or did life occur as a result of an intelligent designer? All right. Now, I want to bring this to a conclusion this morning. Uh, and I realize at the end of the day, each of these arguments by themselves may not be completely convincing. But here's the thing. When they are taken together, they may point us toward a deeper pattern of meaning. So if you can imagine it like threads in a fabric, okay? Each clue begins to build on top of the other until a larger pattern begins to form. And so it's this cluster of clues, this pile of evidences, okay, that is important for us to pay attention to. And taken together, they point us toward an intelligent designer or creator. Now, as I said already today, we are just, we are just skimming the surface today. Um, but what I'm hoping is that what we've talked about today may have sparked something in you. It may have raised more questions, okay? Can I just encourage you? Can I encourage you to take a deeper dive into those questions that you have? Like I said, we provided multiple resources inside of the bulletin insert that's available for you today. For those of you watching online, we are also going to post it online for you. Um, we provided these multiple resources in your notes. Um, can I encourage you to look at the evidence objectively? I think that's the most important thing, is that you actually look at the evidence objectively. The challenge with looking at the evidence for God is this. There's a bit of a conflict of interest when he asks the question, does God exist? Because here's the thing. If there is a God who knows you completely, who loves you entirely, and wants to enter into a very real relationship with you, the implications of that truth are quite significant. And so because of that, sometimes it's very difficult for us to take off our biased lenses and truly look at the question objectively. My encouragement for you is that you'll take off the lenses, these subjective personal lenses. You know, maybe it's pain from your past. Maybe it's bad experience you had with church. Uh, maybe it, it's, it's just some assumptions that you've always had about God. My encouragement is take off the lenses. Follow the evidence where it leads. And look at it purely objectively. Because I'll say from my own stories is that um, it wasn't my intellect that kept me from moving forward in my relationship with God. My early days... 
in my younger days, I was really looking into this question of God's existence. And if he was existing, what did that mean for me personally? Um, it wasn't my intellect that kept me from moving forward. At the end of the day, it was my will that kept me from moving forward. Because I knew if that question could be answered, and, it, and if what theists were saying and Christians were saying was true, the implications for my life were pretty significant. And so I, I often avoided the argument, or I, or I, I, I just became, I don't know, uh, absurdly argumentative, or I delayed, you know, I did whatever I could to keep me moving forward uh, in this question, because I knew about the implications it had for my life. Can I just challenge you this morning? Um, and, and part of it is because I've been there, and part of it is because I care deeply about you, even though I haven't met you, I can say that. Um, be courageously unbiased. Be courageously unbiased. And follow the evidence where it leads. You might be surprised what you find on the other side. But to do that, it's going to take effort. It's going to take time. But if it's true, the implications are far-reaching, aren't they? What if you're here today and you are convinced? What if you hear and you say, hey, I believe that the creator of the universe exists. I believe that he created all of these amazing things, right? And I believe that he loved me enough to enter into the world as a human being. That he entered into the world and he served me and he died for me. And he rose again, and he's still involved in my life even today. What if you're here today, and that's true for you. You are convinced. What should be our response? Wonder. Wonder. And worship. And worship. The psalmist writes in Psalm 8, verse 3 to 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Wonder. I want to invite you to pray with me. I'm going to invite uh, Joel up, and he's going to lead us in a final song. So can we pray together? So creator God, Father, who cares for us, deeply and who loves us. I, I pray today that you would uh, take these things that we've talked about and, and you would make them clear to our hearts. And God, that uh, you would stir something inside of us. God, for those who, who are, are tripping up and struggling with this, I, I pray just for a sense of clarity. And I pray for a sense of peace in the journey as well. So God, we just turn our hearts to you now in worship for who you are, for all that you've done. We give thanks and praise to you. In Jesus' name. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected 
with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.